course, that last line in the song, until every heart confesses Christ as Lord, I think we should understand that comes from Philippians and the, the idea that there is that every heart will confess that Christ is Lord. It's the question is whether they do so now, willingly, and saving in a saving manner, saving according to saving faith, or if they do so later when they see God revealed in all His glory and they bow the knee. But it'd be too late then for their eternal souls. As we get started this morning, I just want to, I didn't pray about it, I forgot at the moment, but we want to be praying for Miss Helene. I think she's at, under the weather. Uh, right now, so just be praying for her. I pray that she's listening to us. Uh, normally she does when she's not in church. Just pray for her that she would have a, a fast recovery from what ails her this morning. Well, here we are. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that you have been this week's, this week resting in God's sovereignty and that the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension has guarded your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now last week we started a, a new series called God's Abundant Harvest. As I told you last week, Keith and I thought it would be helpful and encouraging to you for us to take a break from our current preaching series to bring greater clarity and a renewed focus on our biblical philosophy of ministry in this series, we plan to study God's abundant purpose for the church, which we started last week by taking a fresh look at the first two pillars of our philosophy of ministry. And uh, after that, we plan to, um, well, actually, uh, yeah, after that, we, so today I'm going to finish the, the first two pillars, and um, then Keith is going to pick up next week on God's plan for the church by taking a fresh look at Paul's instructions in Ephesians 4. And after that, uh, that's going to be two weeks, God's plans for the church and God's priority of church leadership by looking at uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. In short, we want to, we, our desire is to reestablish our commitment to our Lord's purpose for His church. More than ever, we need to trust Jesus' promises to, our promise to build His church in Matthew 16, 18. Over the past couple of years, we have endured the incessant pounding of the culture. We've also endured those who oppose God's purpose for the church. More than ever, we need to cling to Jesus' promise to build His church and His guarantee that the gates of Hades will not overpower His church. That's Matthew 16, 18. As always, as, as this is in my, um, with me at least, uh, leading these things, uh, these series tend to be a, a work in progress. I think Keith's kind of getting used to that. Uh, he, I think he's probably more uh, wants to do it, you know, like, like how we plan. I, I tend to morph as we go, and so we're kind of getting together on that. Well, last Sunday I preached uh, the first pillar, we exist to exalt God, and I had intended to preach the other three pillars, but I think I called uh, Keith on about Wednesday or Thursday and said, yeah, that's not going to work out, brother. Um, I need more time than that. So that wasn't uh, God's plan that we would do that. Uh, so today we're going to take... Uh, the time to reestablish the reason we have a biblical philosophy of ministry, and then we're going to begin to look at the second pillar 
uh, we we're going to finish the second pillar. We exist to exposit the scriptures, which, the, uh, which is the word of God. So with that, let us pray, and then we'll dive in. Our gracious Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Lord, your Holy Spirit would be here this morning in our hearts, in the hearts of your people. Father, that you would, through your Spirit, show us Christ. Father, I pray that we would consider these things. And Lord, I know this is uh, much of this, if not all of it, is a review. But I pray that you would use it powerfully in the life of this church. That we would, Lord, recommit to what you would have us do as a church. That we would grasp these things. And that we would go forward with confidence and courage in the name of Christ. It's in His name that I pray. Amen. So, before we jump into our second pillar, I want to go back and reiterate the importance of having a biblical philosophy of ministry. I want to answer the following question. Why should we have a biblical philosophy of ministry? Now, in the past, I've given four reasons that, that we must develop and follow a biblical philosophy of ministry. I, I preached these four reasons back in February 2019. And since I preached them, much has happened, including pressure from some quarters to change our philosophy of ministry. So the Lord has compelled me and, and Keith as well to reiterate these, these to you. So let's look at the first reason why we must have, we must develop and follow a biblical philosophy of ministry. A biblical philosophy of ministry binds us to the Scripture. We believe, we believe that the principles that we use to formulate our governing principles of the church must be derived directly from Scripture. And we believe that it is our aim to do God's work in God's way. So therefore, our, our guidelines should come from God's Word. Many churches set aside biblical convictions for pragmatic reasons. And we felt the same pressure. Right? They, they feel the pressure to grow and, and to be, quote-unquote, successful in ministry. They begin to feel this pressure because of the need to even pay for ministry. There has to be money coming in in order to support ministry. And so they begin to do things that are not derived from Scripture. Many derive their philosophy of ministry from the latest church growth strategies or even corporate strategies. But... Grace Bible Church, we here at Grace Bible Church, must not, be, must not be governed by principles that are derived outside of Scripture. Said another way, our biblical convictions must, be, must not be set aside for practical or pragmatic reasons. Let me give you an example. You look around and you say, well, where's all the people? Well, we must, we, we must not have good worship. Maybe we need to have a band up here. Or, or maybe, maybe I need to shorten my sermons because, because they're too much. Maybe I need, to, I, I need to tell more stories. Maybe I need to give more illustrations you know, to, to, to lighten it up. Maybe I need to tell more jokes to make you laugh more. That's what I'm talking about, this, these pragmatic reasons. But it also could be pra practical. I mean, we need money to do ministry. I mean, I, I, have, I, I get paid every week, and, or every month, I think it is. And so, so I mean, it, that money has to come from somewhere. And when there's nobody in the seats, you know, it's nickels and noses, right? Counting nickels and noses is what I've heard. You know, you, when there's nobody in the seats, there's no money coming in. So, 
So, you know, you end up having the pressure to change ministry so that you can get that money flowing again. But here's, the, here's what we have to understand. Scripture is sufficient not only for our doctrine, but for practice as well. The Apostle Paul makes this very claim about Scripture when he says this. He says in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, Paul understood that the Scripture is all that we need to be equipped to do the work of ministry. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he, he articulated his purpose for writing to Timothy when he said this, But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. Conduct himself, right? The idea of what we do in church, how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Now, we are, at Grace Bible Church, we believe that we are the church of the living God and that we are to be the pillar and the support of the truth. We are and remain the pillar when we use Scripture to conduct ourselves in the church. So our philosophy of ministry then must be based on a careful investigation of both the explicit teachings of, of Scripture and implicit principles drawn from Scripture. Therefore, a biblical philosophy of ministry will bind us to Scripture. Let me give you a second reason we must develop and follow a, a biblical philosophy of ministry. A biblical philosophy of ministry holds us steady. In life, we must know where we're going or we will, we, we'll never know when we get there. In other words, if you have no direction, if we have no direction, we'll wander around in circles. It has been said, it has been said, and you probably have heard this saying, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. We've all witnessed men who wander through life with little or no direction. They may have great ideas, but they get bored with them, so they change direction to something completely different. I recall the first time I preached through these, uh, a story of an ultra-marathon runner who was running a 125-mile race, and around mile 70, he became delirious and began to run in circles on the trail. Anyone knows, any, anybody that, even you don't have to know anything about ultra marathons to know that if he had continued to run in circles, he would have never finished the race. He would have never made the goal. And the same is true for ministry. Any church that approaches ministry without a clearly defined direction will never accomplish its purpose. And that church will spin in circles in the middle of the trail, and, and I'll tell you this, it'll eventually die. It'll eventually die. We not only waste time, but we waste energy and we waste valuable resources if we don't have ministry direction. We don't have ministry direction. And said another way, we don't have ministry direction set by Scripture. We, and we're not able, we won't be able to accomplish anything of eternal significance. Therefore, a biblical philosophy of ministry is there to keep us on a steady path. In 1 Corinthians 9.26, Paul reminded the church at Corinth that he he ran in such a way as not without aim. As not without aim. Brethren, we, we must know where we're going so that we can avoid going in the wrong direction and aiming at nothing. As I said earlier, we, you can be certain that churches who don't share our passion for ministry shaped by the Scripture have a philosophy of ministry which they religiously follow. 
Some of you work for companies that have vision and, and even purpose statements. They have a, a certain way of doing business. They realize that without aim, they will not succeed. They fully realize that if they aim at nothing, they'll hit it every time. Beloved, a clearly defined and communicated philosophy of ministry will mobilize a greater part of our congregation in the same direction. It will narrow our church's focus and broaden our impact, ensuring that our leaders and the rest of our people are pulling together in the same direction. And a biblical philosophy of ministry encourages a steady and consistent approach to ministry. So there's not all these fits and starts. We go over here and we do this. We go over there and we do this. No, we, we do what is focused. The effect of our church's work, if we follow a biblical philosophy of ministry, the, the effect of our church's work will be maximized when we understand and work toward our Lord's priorities for this church. So there's a third reason we must develop and follow a philosophy of ministry, a biblical philosophy of ministry. It gives us a standard. It gives us a standard. We all can struggle with knowing what to do in life. Some of the youth here are struggling to know what college to attend or whether to even attend college or to go to the military or to go just to work, maybe in a trade. In life, it's okay as you're young, it's okay to struggle to get on the right path as I look back on, on my life, I see many struggles to, in my life to find the right path, yet each move was ordained by God who, who guided me. And I, I'm sure if you look at your life, we talked about this this morning in the men's di, uh, discipleship, I'm sure if you look at your life, you can see many of the same things. As we look back on the past few years, we can see the same struggle as a church. We've started this or that Bible study, we've made this or that decision, we didn't follow through. Uh, there's been pressure to do things that don't line up with our philosophy of ministry. There have been even missteps along the way. And, and some of that can be expected as we work through effective ministry, you know, to work into settling into a, an effective ministry. <clears throat> even established churches, churches start ministries only to see them wane and change due to changes in direction. I was caught up into one of those changes when I was in seminary. I, I volunteered with a ministry called Grace Advance, only to find out a couple of weeks later after starting that, that the main leaders, both of them, were moving on, and on to other ministries. I didn't even find out from them. I found out from other people that that's what happened. It, like the rug was pulled out from under me. But those changes shouldn't cause us to struggle too much. Even, even the Apostle Paul saw many changes in direction in Acts 16. Luke records a time when Paul's ministry team decided to go to certain places but were forbidden by the, by the Holy Spirit. Paul and his team ended up in Macedonia preaching the gospel in Philippi and Thessalonica. And, and it ended up being wonderful ministry with churches planted in both of those places. But it was, it was a change in direction that Paul didn't understand. God still guides us in ministry today, yet, yet we can expect these fits and starts in ministry as we discern God's will for us. But there are times, there are times when, uh, when we do things that have little or not, uh, nothing to do with the church's overall purpose, and they consume our time. They consume uh, the pastor's time and, and church resources. And so we have, to be able to, we have to be able to say no to those things. We have to be able to say and, and, and look at it and go, that's not what we need to be doing. That's what a biblical philosophy of ministry will do for us. Beloved, we are in, a, in grave danger when we don't evaluate ministry by a biblical standard. 
because we'll get stuck with ministries that are not effective yet take valuable resources. A biblical philosophy of ministry allows decisions to be made with, a, with an overall scriptural understanding firmly in place and at the forefront of our ministry or of our thinking. A biblical philosophy of ministry gives us a standard we can use to determine the ministries we should participate in, whether it's starting a Christian school or a seminary or, or partnering with certain parachurch organizations or even sending out or partnering with a missionary. A biblical philosophy of ministry gives us a standard to evaluate these opportunities, and it, and it gives us a standard to evaluate ministries such as preaching. You know, what are we doing up here? Why are we doing this? Uh, why are we doing this, uh, as I've heard one of you say a lot, a sermon monologue? Why do I stand up here and, and preach in that way? Uh, if that's a biblical philosophy of ministry helps us understand that. It helps us evaluate music and, and which music that we're going to play or, or sing and do. It helps us um, look at children's programs and youth programs to ensure that we're, in, we're pursuing them in a biblical manner. Let me look at, let's look at the last reason. We must develop and follow a biblical philosophy of ministry. A biblical philosophy of ministry provides us a shield. According to the Apostle Paul, the elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We must uh, appreciate how easily it is to fall into doctrinal error. Uh, we can easily do that. Someone can come along with something that sounds good to our ears, uh, that maybe tickles our ears, and if we're not careful, we can be swept into error. Yet, we must recognize that apostasy not only occurs in, in orthodoxy or doctrine, uh, w what we say we believe, but error can also come through orthopraxy or the practice of our doctrine as well. Many churches have sound doctrinal statements. I don't know how many times I've in the past, look for churches on the internet. You look at their doctrinal statement and it, boy, it looks good, but then you d dig deeper into it and you find out that they don't practice what they teach, what they supposedly teach. This has been a problem for the church since the beginning, uh, since the time it began with the time of the apostles. And in Galatians 2.14, Paul called Peter out for his lack of living out the doctrine that he, he understood, he clearly understood. He asked, he asked Peter why he compelled the Gentiles to live like Jews. In, in that case, Peter had succumbed to the pressure from the Jews, so he, he compelled the Gentiles to begin doing things like the Jewish people. So clearly, knowing the truth, Peter knew the truth, but knowing the truth must be accompanied by living the truth. We must understand that pastors in their churches can apostatize by degrees without even noticing they've slipped. And that's why we're going back through these things today so that we can see areas where we've slipped potentially and, and we can reset and we can understand this is why we do what we do. And so a properly crafted and, and utilized philosophy of ministry will provide the, a needed check on the direction of a church. But a, a shallow and flippant understanding of, of, the, of the divine purposes for the church will lead to a pragmatic, carnal, and maybe, and maybe sinful approach to ministry. The influence of our current culture with its allurements, the effect of liberal theology, and the impact of people who desire to live in the flesh push our church off its charted course unless we're making those constant course corrections. And that's what this is, is a, a course correction to say, no, we need to do this. 
We exist to exalt God. We exist to exposit the Scriptures. We exist to equip the saints. We exist to evangelize the lost. That's what we do, and that's it. That's it. I mean, obviously, there's things that go along with that. We need to these constant course corrections to ensure that we're not moving away from sound doctrine toward kooky fads that fade away in a few years. How many churches have you seen to do that? Churches that have some fad, right? Some something that that they think is the next best thing for for the church, and and then all of a sudden you look up a year or five years down the road, they don't exist anymore. They've gone on to the next fad. Well, with that, let's get back to our pillars of our philosophy of ministry. Today's text will be in 2 Timothy 2.15, but I also want to read 2 Timothy 3.16-4.2. through 4, 2. Paul writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for, for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. Charles Spurgeon told the following story to prove that the gospel may be useful even to hearers who forget what they've heard. Some of you all may relate to this story. A minister calls on one of the women in the church on a Monday. When he arrives, he finds her washing wool in a strainer, holding it up under a a pump. And he asks her, how did you enjoy last Sabbath's discourses? She says that they did her much good. Well, what was the text? She does not remember. Well, what was the subject? Well, sir, it's quite gone from me, says the poor woman. Does she remember any of the remarks that were made? No, they're all gone. Well, then Mary, it it couldn't have done you much good. But she protested. Well, it had done her a great deal of good. Then she explained to him by saying, I tell you, sir, how it is. I put this wool and a sieve under the pump, and I pump water on it and the water runs through the sieve, but then it washes the wool. So it is with your sermon. It comes into my heart. Then it runs right through my poor memory, which is like the sieve. But it washes me clean, sir. You know, I've talked a long while about the cleansing and sanctifying power of the Word. Even I, I, I look back on my sermons, I look back on five, almost six years of sermons, and I don't, rem- I don't remember every sermon that I preached. I, I, if I go back and look at the notes, I'm horrified sometimes, but if I go back and look at the notes, I can remember, oh yeah, I preached that. 
Sometimes I'm amazed, sometimes I'm horrified, but you get the picture. We don't always remember, but, but, it, but the Word is washing us clean as it's being preached, as it's being proclaimed. So I've talked a long while about the cleansing, sanctifying power of the Word, but I can't say that my words have had any more of a, would have had any more of an impression on you than those words by that lady washing that wool. Last week we began by looking at this, this series, by looking at the first pillar. We exist to exalt God. In that sermon, we studied uh, Revelation 1-5, through 5, and in those chapters, John described the, the realities about God that the natural mind can uh, scarcely understand. Church men and women are prone to have repugnant thoughts about God because we are of the flesh. In Romans 8.8, 8, Paul says, and, and those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. In Ephesians 2, 1-3, through he says that the unbeliever is dead. He walks according to the ways of this world. He, he conducts himself in the lust and the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In Ephesians 4, 17-18, he says that those who are outside of God uh, walk in the futility of their mind and are, are darkened in their mind and are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance brought about by the hardness of their hearts. Yet when God saves us by His grace, He gives us a new mind. He gives us a, a mind that can understand spiritual things. Therefore, we are, are commanded by our Lord uh, to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Therefore, as a church, we exist to exalt God. But the truth is, here's the truth and here's the tie. We cannot exalt that which we do not know or understand. And the only way that we can know and gain an understanding of God is through His Word, uh, which He has revealed Himself in. Just listen to the incredible beauty of God's promise in Isaiah 59, uh, 55, 8 and 9. He says this, just think about this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your, are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and, and making it bare and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word which goes forth from my mouth it will not return empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. We can trust that the Word will do its work in the heart of the listener by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16, Paul says that the natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are, are spiritually examined. Then he says this in verse 16. 1 Corinthians 2.16 We have the mind of Christ. As Christians, we have been given the ability to know and understand God's Word by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Let, let me say it this way. If, if we don't use uh, the Word of God to guide us, we will have corrupted thoughts about God and His character. And if this is true, and I believe it is, then the second pillar of our philosophy of ministry 
we exist to exposit the Scriptures, that makes perfect sense. If man's thoughts naturally are corrupted about God, then we need to go to His Word to understand who He is so that we won't have corrupted thoughts about Him. It makes perfect sense because the regular exposition of Scripture regularly exposes us to the mind of Christ. Think about that. That's why I stand up here and preach. That's why I stand up here and preach, so that you will hear the Word of God, so that you will be regularly exposed to the mind of Christ. At Grace Bible Church Gainesville, we are committed to the exposition of Scripture. Therefore, we demand, we demand, we demand the preacher of the Word of God be attentive to his work, not be ashamed of his work, that he would be accurate in his work, and that he would be aware of his work. So let's look at the first demand. We demand the preacher to be attentive to his work. Look at your Bibles if you're there. If you're not, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let me set the context of this letter for you. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy encouraging him to continue in his ministry. He wrote to Timothy during, this is during Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. Now, if you read 1 Timothy and you read 2 Timothy, uh, you can see a stark difference. The, the 2 Timothy is more somber than his first letter to Timothy. Uh, this time, when Paul writes, he seems to be resigned to his faith. Or fate, that is. F-A-T-E. Fate. He is no longer hopeful for his release. Therefore, Paul wrote to Timothy with full knowledge that his life and his ministry were coming to an end. He writes to encourage, he writes to encourage Timothy to remain faithful in the face of ongoing persecution. Now, at that time, Timothy was, at the time that Paul was beginning to fade away from the scene, Timothy was struggling with fear and doubt. He, Paul had reason to fear that, he was, that Timothy was weakening spiritually at a time when he needed to be faithful even all the more in his walk. Look down at chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It says to Timothy, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. In this letter, Paul called Timothy to be courageous in his faith, to speak courageously. In 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, he exhorted him, Do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God which, who has saved us and, and who has called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace which He has given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Verses 10-14 through give us a further understanding of Paul's mindset. I, I'm just reading large chunks here because I want you to hear Paul's words. He says, Starting in verse 9, I'll start in verse 9 to get a running, running start with it. Uh, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Make sure I'm in the right place. I'm not. 
Verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of either the witness about our Lord or me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been manifested by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and, a, and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what, I've been, what I have entrusted to Him until that day. Hold to the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. You see, as, as Paul faced a, a, a certain death, he gave Timothy this, this incredibly strong charge to continue the work of the ministry. He, he exhorted him to retain, to guard, to protect the standard of sound words which had been entrusted to him. But this charge, it resounds and echoes throughout the church age. Any man standing in the pulpit preaching, proclaiming the Word of God has been charged in the very same way. And in chapter 2, Paul continued his charge to Timothy. Just look at the number of commands. I won't read the, the entire text. Just look at the number of commands in the first 14 verses. He says in verse 1, Be strong. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, he says, Entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In verse 3, he says, he says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. In verse 7, he says, Understand what I say, for the Lord will give you insight into everything. Verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. Verse 14, remind them of these things, solemnly charging them in the presence of God not to dispute about words. You see, 2 Timothy is Paul's charge to Timothy and every faithful preacher, every faithful pastor who would come after him, uh, that, that they would retain what has been given to them, that they would pass it along. Now this brings us to our main verse in 2 Timothy 2.15. The first time I preached this sermon, this first point, I used the word assiduous. Assiduous instead of attentive. Assiduous means to show great care and perseverance. And, and I still like that word a lot better. But, but I think attentive can carry the same weight and may, maybe be more understandable to you. Look at your text in 2 Timothy 2.15. Paul tells Timothy to be diligent to... Present yourself approved to God. Paul starts this verse, this verse 15, with yet another imperative to, for Timothy. He tells him to be diligent. Uh, this Greek verb has the nuance of, of being eager and zealous, uh, making every, every possible effort. Uh, this word carries, also carries the idea of having a, a zealous persistence to accomplish a particular ob objective. 
You see, the teacher of the Word of God, the preacher, must give a, a maximum effort to impart God's truth as completely, as clearly, and as unambiguously as possible. He is to have an unreserved commitment to excellence in examining and in interpreting and explaining and, and applying God's Word. Paul commands Timothy to give his entire being to the work of handling the Word of truth. This is not an offhand or careless request, but one to be taken with all seriousness. This command is intensified by the next phrase. He is to present himself approved not, not to men. Not to men. He's not to be a man-pleaser, but he's to present himself approved to God. Timothy must understand that he is not being judged by men, uh, yet he is. But uh, he's being judged by the ultimate judge, by God. You see, ultimately, he won't be judged by the false teacher who, teachers who wrangle with words. He won't be uh, judged by any of his hearers. He'll be judged by Christ Jesus who will judge everything. And any man who stands in this pulpit should understand, must understand, that he will stand before Almighty God. Not before man. To answer for his ways for his words it is christ jesus not mere men who will examine his life and conduct i don't stand before any of you i love you i listen to you but i don't stand before any of you to answer to you i answer to my lord my lord therefore i conduct ministry i preach in a way to be pleasing to him Paul calls Timothy to order his life in such a way as to please God, not men. And since this is true, the aim must be to present yourself approved to God. The word translated approved has the idea of testing or being accepted after testing. Being approved implies being tested and, and proved as precious metals are tested and proved before they are accepted as genuine. We must understand this word in its context. Paul is calling Timothy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And it's that testing through suffering which reveals Timothy's true character before God and before men. If, if Timothy is tested and he, and he runs, and he shows that he's not that man of God that he calls himself to be. Paul calls Timothy to seek God's approval alone. Because God's estimate, estimate of man is always infallible. The man of God, the preacher, must always keep in mind his objective to be pleasing to his master. Therefore, he must be diligent in his efforts to be pleasing to God. He must never default to speaking words which tickle the ears of men, but speak, he is to speak the words of sound doctrine. And many times he'll be rejected for it. Most of the time he'll be rejected for it. But he must never bow to the pressures of man. Later in the letter, Paul warned Timothy, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is 2 Timothy 4.3. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Church, we live in a day, we live in a culture that, that men want their ears to be tickled. That's why men go out from this place because they don't want to hear the truth. 
They want to accumulate for themselves teachers that will, that will not speak against their carnal desires. The men who, who speak the truth, they, want to, they don't want those kind of men. Therefore, men who speak the truth are tested. And we must recognize that God will always test those who are men of the Word. And God's men will pass the test. God's men will pass the test. Spurgeon says this, Preaching is not child's play. It's not a thing to be done without labor and anxiety. It's a, it is a solemn work. It is an awful work if you view it in its relation to eternity. Well, we've seen the first requirement, the first demand for the preacher. He must be attentive in his work. Secondly, we demand the preacher not to be ashamed of his work. Not to be ashamed of his work. 2 Timothy 2.15 Again, approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. In this text, Paul reminded Timothy that his task, the task of every diligent preacher is one of difficult labor. The, the task of preaching the Word of God requires a great amount of effort to be done with excellence. Uh, this effort is akin to climbing a great mountain every week over a period of many years. I, I, I basically write a, a research paper every week of my life. Well, except when Keith preaches. Or we bring somebody else in. But you get the point. According to Paul, the preacher of the Word of God will, will stand before God to be judged for the effort that is exerted. And the lazy, the, the insolent worker will always be ashamed before God. Shame can be defined as, a, as the painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. The word can also be defined as the painful feeling arising from the consciousness of having done something dishonorable. We've all felt that. We've all felt it. Therefore, the, 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 the lazy, disrespectful preacher will always be ashamed before God because he will always come up short. He will always find ways to cut corners in the task of preparation. He won't be willing to spend hours in the seat reading and studying and pondering the Word of God. Therefore, he will not take the time to rightly divide the Word of truth. He will find that task distasteful. He may desire to preach, but he will only preach words that tickle the ears. He'll be a stand-up comedian, yes. But will he say, thus saith the Lord? In the words of H.B. Charles, we, uh, the men listened to him a couple weeks back at the men's conference. He, he says this, a desire to preach without a burden to study is a desire to perform. The man who does not have a burden to rightly divide the word will have ample reason to be ashamed before God. But the man of God, the man of God must stay in his seat, his, his study seat, until the task is complete. He must be willing to do the work necessary to rightly interpret the Word of God and to accurately communicate it. Anything less is shameful. Anything less cannot be tolerated. Anything less would be, might be pleasing to men, but it will never be pleasing to God. Church, the man of God, the preacher, will always be diligent in his work. The man of God will always be diligent in his work because he understands the importance of the task. 
He understands, in Charles Spurgeon, he underst- words, he understands how uh, awful, how amazing the task is. And he won't be ashamed because he knows that his job is to be an unashamed worker. Now let me say this. If you've ever preached, every preacher has, has experienced what it feels like to come up short. There always seems to be words left unsaid. You know, words that could have been said a different way. Words that shouldn't have been said at all. I mean, that's how every, every Sunday afternoon, I, I lay catatonic thinking about this. Did I say it the right way? Was I, was I too over, or I, was I overzealous? Was I, did, did I, did it fall flat? The man of God may come up short, but he will always renew his efforts. He will always look at it and say, Lord, I want to do better next time. Because he understands the importance of the task. We've seen the first two requirements. He must be attentive to his work. He must not be ashamed of his work. Thirdly, we demand the preacher to be accurate in his work. Notice your text in verse 15. Does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Paul reminds Timothy that the unashamed worker will always be diligent to accurately handle the word of truth. As such, any faithful preacher or teacher is, is accurate. That, that is a mark of, of his teaching. Uh, uh, he doesn't fa- play fast and loose with the text. The word translated accurately handled, handles means to literally cut straight or, or cut right. It is used of a, of a craftsman cutting a straight line. It's used of a, a farmer plowing a, a straight row uh, or a mason setting a straight line of, of bricks or of a workman building a, a straight road. Metaphorically, it is used of, of carefully performing any task. You see, Paul was a tent maker by trade according to Acts 18.3. And I'm, I'm certain that he had in mind the careful and the straight cutting and sewing of many pieces of leather or cloth necessary to make a tent. This imagery builds on the imagery of a worker of the worker used earlier in the verse. It's crucial that, that the man of God be accurate in his handling of the Word of God. You see, the man of God, when he's handling the Word of God, he's wielding a dangerous weapon which is capable of great damage if placed in the wrong hands. Just listen to the writer of Hebrews. I think this was read earlier. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. You see, the writer wanted his readers, the writer of Hebrews wanted his readers to recognize the effectiveness of God's Word. Used accurately, God's Word is piercing and and will judge our thoughts and, and judge our intentions but used inaccurately, used flippantly. It becomes a menacing weapon that can tear people from limb limb from limb. It's not that God's Word changes. It, it, It never changes. God's Word, as we saw in Isaiah 55, will always do the work that God intends it to do. It's that the unfaithful preacher mangles the Word. He mangles it. He mangles it in such a way that it becomes a a hammer. 
It becomes a hammer that, that bludgeons and takes the life of the hearer. Instead of giving life, it takes life. Now look back at your text in 2 Timothy 2.15. The reason Paul told Timothy to be attentive to his work and to not be ashamed of his work and to be accurate in his work uh, is because we demand the preacher to be aware of his work. Aware of it. Look back at verse 15. Accurately handling the word of truth. The word of truth. He's handling the word of truth. And, when, and not only, uh, only when he handles it correctly will he be unashamed. Now you may ask, what is, what is the word of truth? Well, in certain places in the New Testament, the phrase uh, word of truth or message of truth refers specifically to the gospel. And in Ephesians 1.13, Paul used the phrase to refer to the gospel. He says, in him, uh, you also, after listening to the word of truth, he even defines it. He, he, he says, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. He does the same thing in, in, in Colossians 1.5. He says, uh, you previously heard the word, of the, uh, word, the word of truth, the gospel. In James 1.18, James speaks of the, the Father's exercising His will by, by, by bringing us forth by the word of truth. Again, the understanding there is the gospel. In other, in other places, though, God's truth refers to the full revelation of, of His Word in Scripture. Jesus must have had this broader meaning in mind when He prayed to His Father on our behalf, uh, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. In either case, Paul's point here is the same. When we preach and teach the Word of God, we are, in fact, preaching and teaching the gospel. Because what we understand as the gospel, the, the good news of, of Jesus, the Messiah, uh, we, we see that uh, from Scripture, and we understand that that message has very little sense apart from the teaching of, of the whole counsel of God. The entire message of Scripture. In other words, the gospel cannot be separated from the truth of the Word of God. I think... That's the point that Paul makes in Acts 22-27. He, he declared to the Ephesian elders uh, that he was going to Jerusalem uh, where chains and afflictions awaited him, yet he didn't hold his life dear. He only wanted to finish the course solemnly testifying of the gospel of the grace of God. Just listen to his final words to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20, 25-27. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I want you to quickly turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see this. If you're struggling with this idea that that the gospel and the word of truth being the gospel and the word of truth being the whole counsel of God. I want you to see this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. In, in that chapter, Paul told the church in Thessalonica in verse 2 that he spoke the gospel of God to them amid much struggle. Look down at verses 8 and 9. He says, In this way, having fond affection for you, we are pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our own lives because you have become beloved to us. For you remember, uh, brothers, our, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to you, any of you, 
we proclaim the gospel of God. Now skip down to verse 13. That's what Paul writes in verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, notice the change, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So what did they give them? The gospel or the word of God? Both. Yes. Yes. I would argue that Paul sees the gospel of God and the word of God as being inseparable. Said another way, we can't know the gospel of God apart from God's word. Therefore, we cannot shrink back from teaching and explaining the whole purpose of God. And by the way, that's the simple definition of what we call, have called expository preaching. When we exposit the Scriptures, we, every aspect of God's truth must be handled accurately. It is a sacred trust between God and those who teach His Word and those who hear His Word. Paul completely understood that trust. In Colossians 1.25, Paul told the Colossians that he had been made a minister of the church. Now just listen to, the, to his words. He says this in, in, in verses 24 and 25. This is Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking uh, of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I have been made a minister according to the stewardship uh, from God, which is given to me for you, so that I might carry out the preaching of the Word of God. In other words, Paul wanted... Paul's desire was to, to see the Word of God become fully known among the Gentiles. Paul understood that trust, and he emphatically wanted to pass it along to Timothy, who would in turn entrust others with it. I love this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, What is the chief end of preaching? What is the chief end of preaching? I like to think it is this. It is to give men and women a sense of God and His presence. Now think about, we exist to exalt God. We exist to exalt God. That's why we exposit the Word. That's why we exposit the Word. Because we want you to see, we want you to have a sense of God's presence from His Word. Church, we can only give a sense of God in His presence when we preach the Word of truth. Beloved, again, that is the tie between what, is, what we've defined as expository preaching and teaching. The man of God, the preacher of the Word of God, has been charged to preach the Word of truth. He has been charged to preach the whole counsel of God. He cannot shrink back from this without having innocent blood on his hands. I hope it's clear. I hope it's clear. I hope this is a, that this is a sacred trust. I want to end with a text that I could have easily preached today. I'm compelled to finish this sermon the same way I finished it three years ago. I want you to know nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I want to finish with a charge to this church. 
and to any man who stands in this pulpit, whether it's Keith or whether it's somebody that we bring in, with me, any man who comes after me, I want you to listen to this carefully. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and teaching. This charge was made by Paul to Timothy. And it's applicability to a modern context is clear. To the preacher in the modern context is clear. We are to preach the Word of God without shrinking back no matter the, the, the consequences, no matter the circumstances. And, and I believe that this charge is applicable to you as well. You have been given a trust here at Grace Bible Church Gainesville. I pray that you'll never accept anything less than a man who will open the Word of God and explain it to you so that you can understand it. That is all we need. That's it. That's what we do. And don't let anybody else anybody tell you differently. I pray that you will guard what has been entrusted to you. My prayer is that you, you will take this charge seriously and that you would hold any man accountable, including me, including Keith, including any man you would bring who presumes to stand in this pulpit. I pray that you would hold him accountable to preach the whole counsel of God. Because that's what you need. I pray that you will expect him to be ready in season and out of season and that He would reprove, and that He would rebuke you, and that He would exhort you with great patience and instruction. That's what we need. It's what my heart needs. Heavenly Father, so thankful for Your Word. Father, I pray that we would Use it as we as we have a, a philosophy of ministry guided by your word. Pray as a church that we would be committed to your exaltation, that we would be committed to the exposition of your scripture, that we would be committed to the equipping of the saints, and that we would be committed to evangelism of the lost. Father, I pray that You'd raise up men from among us who are men who want to carry on this sacred trust and will even die for it if necessary. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.